Welcome to Boston Venue, the channel podcast. This is the true and complete story of the legendary Boston music club, The Channel. From its shaky launch in one of Boston's grittiest neighborhoods, through the glory years of beer-soaked rock, punk, and reggae shows, from an incredible roster of artists, and its demise at the hands of local mobsters after a spectacular run. A demise that ultimately led to a murder that would take 25 years to solve. This podcast includes explicit language and violent episodes. No sugarcoating and no bullshit. Let's rock. Harry Boris and the group opened the channel in Boston's gritty, desolate Fort Point neighborhood in May of 1980. The building had been an oldies club, a cheesy theme restaurant, a disco, and all had ultimately failed. Death by location. This was not a part of town you went to if you weren't from there. Yet the channel, with its 1,600-person capacity, arena-grade sound system, and genre-smashing booking policy, was preparing to take Boston by storm. Free parking, cheap drinks, and reasonable ticket prices, an open booking policy, all-ages shows, and a commitment to local music that would attract the locals, the punks, the rockers, the rastas. At least that was the hope. This is Boston Venue, the channel podcast, episode two. Let's go. Word was starting to get out. To announce the grand opening, the channel took out a half-page ad in the Boston Phoenix, the big local arts and entertainment newspaper. A week before the grand opening, the channel received the first of many unexpected and unwelcome visitors. As the crew was putting the finishing touches on the space, a police officer arrived at the venue. So I'm dealing with a million different things around getting ready to open, and this big uniformed policeman just walked into my office, sat down across from me, and said he wanted to talk to me. Uh, what can I do for you, officer? I said. He said, well, this, was a, this is a friendly visit. There's nothing, there's no problem or anything. It's not an official visit. I just came to uh, give you a little bit of an idea on what you're going to be up against here in this location, doing some of these shows that you're doing. The beefy uniform sergeant was holding a copy of the Phoenix, the one that had the ad for the channel. He pointed at the printed calendar, saying these shows were guaranteed to attract violent crowds. You know the history of the Mad Hatter, uh, the cop told me. They used to attract underage patrons. They would serve them too much alcohol. They'd go out and kill somebody, get into accidents, fight. And you're probably going to have the same issues here unless you have some real tight security. Now I can provide that for you. There would be uncontrollable fights resulting in, quote, bloodbaths, end quote, he said. Of course, the officer could make all that go away for the low, low price of just a couple hundred dollars per week. The cop, let's call him Sergeant Johnson, would be the channel's security consultant. In addition to preventing the, quote, unquote, bloodbaths, Sergeant Johnson would ensure the club would not be cited for exceeding its legal capacity, as well as any other potential liquor, or entertainment license violations. And if they didn't hire him? Citations, complaints, raids, 
violations, and of course, the aforementioned bloodbaths. Although he visited several times and kept pushing for a commitment, they ended up not putting him on the payroll. A few days later, there were more unannounced visitors. This time, it was four hulking young men from South Boston, a predominantly Irish neighborhood also known as Southie. They proclaimed that the channel was in their turf. They had worked as bouncers at the Mad Hatter, one of the channel's previous incarnations. Like Sergeant Johnson, the pack painted a dour picture of what might happen if they didn't get put on the payroll. So I was at the bar trying to figure out why the beer tap was dispensing only foam instead of beer. These four guys walked in, they sat at the bar. Now, we weren't open or anything, and I thought there might be service people or something, so I asked them if I could help them. Well, they got right down to business. They said that this is their turf. As such, they would be responsible, or they wanted to be responsible for all things security at the club. So they warned me that if I didn't hire them as a team to provide security, there'd be plenty of trouble. Fights, uh, invasions by uh, undesirables, maybe even some mobsters coming in. And if I did hire them, they would take care of everything. They would provide the security, and I didn't have to worry about fights, undesirables, or mobsters. So one of them went over to the dance floor, reached in back of the DJ booth, and pulled out a small but stout billy club. Obviously a remnant of the Mad Hatter days, clearly a message that, as far as they were concerned, they still had clout. I said, look, you know, you guys can work here. We, we, we are looking for security people. I gave them an application. They looked at me kind of weird and said that I'd better think about what they were offering because I would be very well put to take their offer. I pretty much held out and I said, you know, we'd hire them as bouncers, as security people if they were interested, but we weren't interested in hiring a consulting group or anything like that. So a couple of them filled out an application. We ended up hiring one of them. He was also a longshoreman, and uh, he worked at the channel when there was no work at the docks. A couple of them became thorns in our sides. They'd come in, they'd get drunk, they might start fights. They were thrown out a few times. These first visitations were a sign of things to come. Even in the early days, the parasites had begun swarming, looking to feed on the club's revenue, liquor, good times, patrons, whatever. Now, these guys were just small-time hustlers trying to get a piece. But as the club would rise over the years, the tiny parasites would give way to bigger fish, looking for bigger bites. Until finally, the sharks were constantly circling. What started with a crooked cop and some bouncers from Selfie would culminate in promoters, politicians, and mobsters, all looking to get their beaks wet. But that would come later. Right now, there was a club to open. By now, it's the beginning of May. The bills are piling up, no money coming in. We decided we had to open as quickly as possible. We couldn't postpone it any longer. So we decided to open a Memorial Day weekend. We still didn't have a name. There was a lot of discussions and a lot of arguments about what to call the place. Joe wanted to keep the name Showboat, thinking that we could continue on the reputation or the uh, publicity that he had. 
I thought it was a bad idea because the publicity was not positive. Very few people came, and I didn't think that there was anything to play on. I came up with the name Channel One, the channel representing the location of the place because it was on the Fort Point Channel. And also, I thought channel was a good word as a representing a conduit to unfamiliar music, alternative music that people might want to check out. It turns out there was a local company, I think they were in Newton, that was using the name Channel One as a production company for educational uh, videos. They thought that the name Channel One that we were using infringed on their copyright, and they sent us a cease and desist letter. So we met at the district court in Cambridge, and we agreed to drop the one from the name and to just call it the channel. And that's how the name of the channel came to be. So there we were. We had less than a month to transform the sinking showboat, an oldies cocktail lounge, into Channel One, a rock and roll ballroom that was going to take Boston by storm, or at least we hoped it would. There was a shitload to be done. It was simple, really. Get the place ready and stocked, book some bands, get the word out. Once we made the decision to announce the grand opening, the place which was dead up until then suddenly came alive with a lot of activity. So the phones began to ring incessantly. People were dropping in, managers, agents, and musicians were dropping off demo tapes, press kits, salesmen and women pushing everything from beer and liquor promotions to the latest coin-operated video games like Atari, Pac-Man, and Galaga. Joe had a minimal amount of, of liquor and beer in the bar, and a couple of the bartenders that had worked at the showboat came back and uh, were rehired, so we were okay for the time being. I knew, however, that if uh, we had a busy weekend, it wouldn't be enough. To get the word out, we did run that ad in the Phoenix, which uh, worked pretty well. We also took advantage of the Boston Globe and the Boston Herald. They would run free listings for events during the week. We contacted the Boston area radio stations, college radio stations, that would play alternative music, local music. There was WERS, ZBC, MFO, MBR, and they would play music like uh, punk and metal and reggae and blues. For the most part, we took advantage of all the free media that was available to us. The challenge was to uh, find a sound system where sometimes three or more bands uh, would play through on a single evening's bill. The idea was to get a system that would eliminate the territorial disputes and pissing contests that occurred among musicians and roadies. So for the first few weeks, uh, it was very difficult to break through Don Law and get uh, national acts. So... You know, we did mostly uh, local acts. We did bands like The Neighborhoods, The Stompers, Pastiche, Human Sexual Response, Mission of Burma, and, you know, many others. There was definitely no shortage of local headliners in Boston at the time. The channel had spent countless hours and thousands of dollars getting to this point. The whole thing was a high-stakes gamble, and it wouldn't take long to figure out if it was going to work or not. For all the plans strategies, and projections, it really came down to one thing. Were people going to show up? Would enough patrons cross that bridge into the desolate Fort Point neighborhood to actually sustain a club with a hefty 1,600-person capacity? There was no time to gradually build an audience. It was either going to happen, or they would all go broke. Everything 
was riding on opening night. On June 1st, 1980, Ted Turner would launch the first 24-hour cable news network. But back then, people still relied on the daily paper for their news. Print was still king. A single print ad in the Boston Phoenix already had the city buzzing about the opening. The stage was set, literally. A full staff was being hired and trained, and things were noisy. In addition to everything else that was going on, the phones were ringing off the hook. It was nuts. Beer and liquor companies trying to arrange deliveries or looking to pick up a check. Band road managers looking to do advance work. Employees looking for the schedule. The press. And of course, a lot of calls from people looking for directions and trying to find out what the show was or was playing next week or the week after. And of course, there's the guest list. Debbie Boris, Harry's daughter, fielded a lot of those guest list calls. The phones were wild. Everyone with a micro connection to the club on the day of the show called, and all at the same time, demanding to speak to the owner, the manager, the booking agent, the band manager, the head of security, any connection to get through those doors. After a few days of uh, telephone madness, we ordered and installed another line, and we made the main uh, number a recorded concert line that we updated daily. And it provided information on how to get there from South Station, as well as uh, concert and ticket information. In the days leading up to opening night, the activity became increasingly frenetic. But among all the calls and visits, one stood out. Don Law's office had called and asked for a meeting. So I'm saying, holy shit, Don Law's on the phone and he wants to have a meeting with us. I mean, we were impressed just because he noticed us. Don Law was the biggest name in town when it came to popular music promotions. He was the rock promoter in the Northeast, controlled pretty much everything. The fact that he wanted to have a meeting with us, we thought was pretty cool. So he showed up as scheduled one late afternoon along with Neil Jacobson, his assistant. He informed us that Neil would be the point man in our negotiations. Law was very smooth, very slick, confident, almost arrogant. He came in, he looked at the place, he wasn't overly impressed, and said that he thought the only thing that could work in there was maybe heavy metal. He actually floated a band, Def Leppard, that he thought he could get us for our opening night. His negotiating tactics consisted of promises and vague threats, promises that he could deliver big name, touring rock and roll acts, and threats that if we decided not to take his deal, he'd make sure we're out of business before the end of the year. So his proposal was that he would book all national acts that came to the channel. He would take care of the booking, the promotion, and the box office. We wouldn't get anything out of them the opportunity to sell alcohol to a full house during his shows. We were allowed to book local bands, as many as we wanted. If a local band signed a major contract or a major record uh, deal, we would no longer be allowed to book them or even speak with them. Don Law would be the 
so person they could book them at the channel or anywhere else. We thought that his deal was too restrictive. It was intended to keep the channel uh, as a minor entity. The Thursday before opening weekend, the channel hosted an invitation-only VIP party. It went pretty well. A couple of hundred people showed up for free drinks and the new models played for the crowd. The room sounded good, but there was still work to be done. So the staff was hired, the bands were booked, the beer was cold, and the VIP party was a success. Now it was time for opening night. It was a three-band bill featuring the neighborhoods, the legendary Boston rockers who would later go on to open for Bowie, the Ramones, and Cheap Trick. But tonight, they were the headliners. The night started slowly. Where was everyone? As Harry paced, fearing the worst, the phone began to ring again. On June 5th, a few days after the channel's opening night, Boston Globe music critic Steve Morse wrote the following. Last Friday's opening night attracted about 700 people to hear the neighborhoods and dogs. Well, Saturday drew 600 to Count Viglione's Rock Spectacular, featuring the Count, La Peste, Pastiche, and Mission of Burma. The co-owners are Harry Boris, Richard Clement, Joe Cicerone, and Dom Perillo. They promised to install a house sound system and to keep booking Boston bands on weekends. Can Boston support a rock club of this size? The gamble is on. GPS hadn't caught on in 1980, but it looked like Channel One was about to. All said, over 700 people walked through the door that night. There was a capacity for over twice that, but not bad for a first run. Halfway through the night, there was a surprise special delivery, a congratulatory bottle of champagne from Don Law. Remember him? The son of the legendary record producer by the same name, and an imposing figure in New England's live music scene. Law was known for his ruthless business sense and a distaste for competition. We'll come back to him later, but let's just say that he was not known for his generosity. Was this a threat or a promise of things to come? They put the bottle on ice and went back out to work. The rest of the night went great. The band slayed, the people partied, everyone had a good time. It was working. The bar made money and no bloodbaths. And that bottle of Don Law's champagne was cold. It was time to pump the cork and celebrate a little. But despite the initial momentum, there were still problems. Remember Sergeant Johnson, the crooked cop who foretold the problems with the law unless he was put on the payroll? The channel was raided on their second night, a Saturday, right before last call. Law enforcement had invoked a seldom-used blue law that required an extra license for opening on a Sunday. Night manager Peter Boris and Boston Globe music critic Steve Morse recall the event. I was in the night office counting money so I could get all the payouts done. One of the uh, people in the cashier's booth came back into the night office and said to me that uh, there's some Boston police out there that are looking for you. When I went out to see, you know, what the cops wanted, they said, you know, we need to see your license. And I thought they were referring to the liquor license. 
So I brought them out there. They looked at it. I said, there's our liquor license right there. And they said, no, nope, you need a special two-hour license to operate on Sunday night between 12 and 2 a.m. So at that point, they made me get everybody out of there, so we had to turn all the lights on. And when the band saw the bright lights come on, they stopped, shocked. They didn't know what was going on. And it was a challenge because, you know, there was tabs on the bars that needed to be paid. The waitresses had the running tabs with a lot of customers, you know, on the floor. It was just a big, big mess. Both nights created impressive ripples for the new club, although the second night was marred by a 1.30 a.m. shutdown by Boston police because club personnel had forgotten to pay a weekly $40 fee for a separate Sunday entertainment license for the hours midnight to 2 a.m. The raid cost the club about a grand in lost revenue. In 1980, that's a lot of beer. Somebody said it would have been a lot better to pay that crooked cop off. It would have been cheaper, but I'm glad we didn't. After the weekend, the team looked at the space in broad daylight, and it wasn't a pretty sight. Don Skeltrato from Major Disturbance vividly remembers the transformation. I did lights a few times at the channel. I remember the house PA was quite good and bands did like to play there because they would end up with a very good mix. The almost magical atmosphere at night was stripped away in the light of day. As I was changing lighting gels and refocusing pars, I remember thinking that the carpet had countless cigarette burns and stains from spilled drinks and probably some other stuff too. The backs of rusty buildings and the dirty water in the Fort Point Channel looked shabby. But by night, with the twinkling lights of the city and the enthusiasm and energy of the musicians and patrons, the channel was amazing. Despite all the challenges the weekend presented, the group knew they had a winner. The sound was good, the beer was cold, and the people were coming. But questions still remained. Would the cops continue to harass? Was Don Law an ally, or would he use his immense power to stifle the channel? And the selfie bullies? They left the club alone on opening weekend, but for how long? So despite a healthy launch, keeping the doors open, the drinks flowing, and the bands rocking, would be much harder than anyone could have anticipated. On the next episode, powerful forces from political bigwigs, the mob, and the city's music powerhouses could make or break the channel. Things are about to get nasty. Boston Venue The Channel was conceived and created by Harry Boris, executive producer David Ginsberg, written by Chris O'Keefe, engineered by Tori Lamb, produced by Chachi LaPrette, edited and mixed by Tony Baglio. Music featured in this episode was provided by Major Disturbance. Storytellers featured in this episode were Peter Boris, Steve Morse, Debbie Boris, and Don Scaltrato. Graphic design by Lisa St. John Bennett. I'm your narrator, John Laurenti. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends to check us out at thechannelstory.com or on Facebook, Boston Venue, The Channel Story. Leave your comments and share your stories.